Exodus 20, 22 through 21, 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy an Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore a hole through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. When he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing, without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her child come out, that there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But the ox has been but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the, their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Okay. Altar stones, slavery, striking parents, and shorthorn oxen. What are we going to do with this? You know, we've hit that part of the Old Testament where our eyes start to glaze over a little bit. You know, if you start reading the Bible at Genesis 1, you've gotten to this point with a whole bunch of familiar and really engaging stories. God speaks everything into existence. Then Adam and Eve and the serpent and the forbidden fruit. This startling call of Abraham. The miraculous birth of his son Isaac. This struggle between Esau and Jacob. The dreamer, Joseph, and his brothers who sold him into slavery. The devastating long captivity of Israel and Egypt. The ten plagues brought on Pharaoh. And even the ten commandments are at least familiar to us. And then we get here. And then we get here. Altar stones, slavery, striking parents, and regulations for out-of-control oxen. We get to this portion of the law, and we sigh and go, oh, hey, what am I going to do with this? You know, instructions about building altars, they're unnecessary today. Instructions about slavery are confusing and troubling. The prescribing capital punishment for children who strike or curse their parents? That seems utterly barbaric. And the instructions about what to do when your oxen gores your neighbor? I mean, never mind oxen. How about some instructions for when your neighbor's dog poops on your lawn and he doesn't clean it up? That would be helpful. I mean, what are we supposed to do today with the law that Jeannie read for us. Well, let's begin by recognizing what we have here. These laws are specific applications of the ten words or ten commandments to the life of Israel. For example, the end of Exodus chapter 20 contains instructions about altars and sacrifices. Well, that law was meant to restrict and inhibit Israel's worship of other gods because the first of the ten words that the Lord spoke from Sinai was, you shall have no other gods before me. And so the rules about altars were an outworking, a practical application of this, of this truth in the life of Israel. It inhibited the worship of other gods. You're not going to construct your altar to worship the true God the way that altars are constructed for the worship of other gods. In the same way, the regulations about a child striking or cursing his or her parent, they're the practical application to the life of Israel of the fifth word, which was honor your father and your mother. 
and the regulations about striking and causing harm or death of someone else, or even the regulations about protecting your neighbor from an angry oxen, those are all outworkings, practical applications of the sixth word, you shall not murder. So what we have in the laws that Jeannie read for us today are specific practical applications to Israel of what it looks like for her to live in accordance with the truth about God and humanity as revealed in the Ten Commandments or Ten Words. Because we need to remember that the Ten Words weren't just arbitrary. God wasn't just randomly picking and choosing commandments for His people to obey. The Ten Words are God revealing Himself to His people. He says to His people, because of who I am, this is what it means to live in relationship with me. And because of who you are and who I designed and created humanity to be, this is what it looks like to live in right relationship to one another. And thus the ten words that we have spoken from Sinai. Because of who I am, says the Lord, this is how to love me. And because of who you are, this is how to love your neighbor. The ten words are a revelation of what love looks like. Who God is, who he created us to be, how he designed relationships to work. And the laws that Jeannie read for us are applications of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, in the life of ancient Israel. But we're not ancient Israel. So what do we do with these today? Now first, we do need to note that these specific laws were not given to us, but were given to the theocratic nation of Israel. So for us today, these Old Testament laws are descriptive, but not prescriptive. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. For us today, these laws don't prescribe or command behaviors that you and I need to obey. But they describe and they illustrate and they teach us about the character and the desires of God. These laws represent the working out of what it meant to love the Lord your God in the context of the ancient theocratic nation of Israel. Now, our context today, it's different. It's a very different context, so these specific applications may no longer be relevant to us. But what we will see and learn here are principles, the heart, the heart behind these laws. You know, for example, today, while we're no longer commanded to put a child to death for cursing or striking a parent, God hasn't changed, and human relationships haven't changed. They're the same now as they were then. And so, proper respect for parents and authority is still reflective of God's character and is still woven into His creation. Honor your father and your mother. Now, while today you're not tempted to build altars of stone for the worship of other gods, we can see God's heart to keep His people from anything that would lead them away from loving and worshiping Him. Because you shall have no other gods before me. And while today you may not own any oxen who's been known to gore people to death, we can see God's heart for people to take seriously the well-being and safety of our neighbor, for you shall not murder. I mean, those things haven't changed. So the law given to the theocratic nation of Israel is a practical application of the truth, of the reality that's revealed by the ten words. What it looks like for them to love the Lord and to love their neighbor. 
So it's not prescriptive or binding on us today, but it's descriptive, it's instructive, and it reveals to us God's character and His design. Can I give you a really interesting example of this principle? In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul was arguing that he said, hey, I'm an apostle sent by God to preach the gospel, and as such, I have the right to benefit and to be paid and just to be supported as I preach the gospel. And the way that he made his argument was by using one of these Old Testament laws. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4. And this is what he says. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It's written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things amongst you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? See, Paul's argument isn't that Christians are bound by the Old Testament law. He says the law reveals the character and the design of God. And he says this law, the law about the oxen, it reveals that God is concerned about the oxen, that the oxen be able to eat and benefit from his own labor. And if God, who's not changing, is concerned about the well-being of the oxen and the oxen benefiting from his labor, don't you think that same God would be concerned that I, as an apostle, can eat and benefit from my own labor? He says we're not bound to obey that command, but look at the heart. The heart of God is revealed by that command. His argument isn't that the Corinthians are still under or bound by the Old Testament laws, but that the Old Testament laws reveal to us God's character and His creation design. So what's most important to understand about all of this is that the law we're studying is not prescriptive for us today, but it is descriptive. It's instructive. It reveals God's heart and His character to you and I today. And so as the Holy Spirit conforms you and I to the character of Christ, we'll find that while we don't submit to the particulars of the laws given to Israel, we are going to reflect the unchanging character of God and the unchanging design of creation as revealed by the laws. Does that make sense? I mean, if it doesn't, just ask Rich Wellman. He'll explain it all after the service. Now, I'm not going to examine each of the individual laws in this section because I want to spend the bulk of my time addressing one particular issue that's raised here. And it's probably an issue that stood out to you and made you cringe as these laws were read. But to suffice to say, as I've already mentioned, most of the laws that we read to, heard read to us today are specific applications of the ten words. Again, the law about altars and application of the first word, the law, regulations about children, uh, application of the fifth word, and the regulations about striking others or not controlling your oxen, oxen, and application of you shall not murder. And before we get to the main event, to the issue that I want to address here, I do want to make one aside about one of the applications of you shall not murder. I do think we need to take a look at this. Look at verses 22 through 25. This is an application of 
the sixth word, you shall not murder. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay the judges what the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What it says here is that if a pregnant woman was struck and it caused the death of the unborn baby, it says a life for a life was to be paid. The unborn life was considered to be a human life worthy of the highest of protections. And the death penalty was prescribed for someone who caused an unintentional abortion. While we might not be under this specific law anymore today, What is the unchanging truth behind the specific application of you shall not murder? If the unborn today is the same as the unborn then, what does this law reveal to us about the identity and the value of the unborn life? And how should this unchanging truth be applied in our world today? All right, that that aside, let's get to something just as controversial. I want to spend the remainder of my time answering the slanderous claim that's regularly made against the Bible. How many times have you heard the claim, the Bible is pro-slavery? The Bible is pro-slavery. And we just heard a bunch of regulations about slavery. And so that might tempt us to believe, oh, the Bible is pro-slavery. And usually what's closely related to this claim is that if the Bible supports slavery, then we probably can't trust anything else it says either. Because it's probably just as misguided, so we should really throw it all out. So, in the laws that Jeannie read, do we find that the Bible is, in fact, pro-slavery? Well, to answer the question, we always need to begin by defining our terms. When somebody makes the slanderous accusation that the Bible's pro-slavery, start by saying, what do you mean by slavery? What do you mean by slavery? Because almost every time you're going to find that the accuser is claiming that the Bible supports the race-based chattel slavery in which the slave is the property of another person and lacks any legal rights. The type of slavery that was practiced here in America in the past. And friends, the best way to respond to that is, so where exactly does the Bible say that? Where exactly does the Bible support that? Because I guarantee you, the accuser will not be able to give you a single passage to justify this outrageous accusation. Because this is a myth. It's a lie that our culture continues to perpetuate. And if you repeat any lie often enough, people start to believe it's the truth. But friends, the Bible, when it discusses slavery, is clearly not describing the race-based chattel slavery which was once practiced here in America. And that's evident, actually, from the laws that we just read this morning. Consider them with me. Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. The first thing we need to know is it says a Hebrew slave. While American chattel slavery was racially motivated by color of skin or the country of birth, there is no racial motivation in the slavery described here. Because both the slave and the master were Israelites. They were of the same ethnicity. Secondly, notice that this was a temporary arrangement. 
he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh year shall go out free for nothing. The slavery that was allowed in the Bible was not lifelong, but was described as a temporary and a mutually beneficial economic relationship. We find when we look at the whole of what the Bible describes, it was far more akin to indentured servanthood or a bond-servant relationship. And it was actually a very, very common economic arrangement in the ancient world, especially for the working off of a debt. In fact, as far back as we go in human history, we find slavery. I don't have the numbers for the ancient Near East when this was written, but in the New Testament, in the first century, it's estimated that one out of three Romans and one in five elsewhere was a slave. Friends, in the time that the New Testament was written, one-third of the Roman population were slaves. And the Greek word doulos can be translated as slave, but it's also translated as servant or bondservant. Because slavery in the ancient world was a common and often a mutually beneficial relationship. And while undoubtedly there were some compassionate American slave owners, American chattel slavery was solely for the benefit of the owner. But the type of slavery that we find described here in Exodus 21 and the type of slavery that occurred in the Roman world was often mutually beneficial. And while there were undoubtedly abuses, slaves in ancient Israel were often considered part of the family and they were treated very well. In fact, you heard in the laws that Jeannie read for us the provisions in verse 5 and 6 for a slave who was due to be set free, but yet chose to willingly remain in service to his master. Or in verse 9, it says that if a female slave was to be married to the master's son, the master was to treat her as a, a daughter, part of the family. Not a slave, but a daughter. And verses 10 and 11 command that a female slave who was married to her master was given to be given the same rights as any other wife. And if deprived of her rights, she was to be set free without any obligation. And moreover, there were protections that this law put in place for slaves. Did you notice in verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged? The death of a slave was a capital crime. The value of the life of a slave was given the same value as any other life. And then in verses 26 and 27, it says, If you struck your slave and his eye was destroyed, he was just to be set free. In fact, it says if you knocked out his tooth, he was supposed to be set free. Slaves were protected from abuse and mistreatment by their masters. American chattel slavery... It afforded no such protections for slaves. Now, friends, understand me clearly. I'm not pointing this out to go, hey, slavery is good. I'm not championing a return to slavery. And neither am I trying to gloss over the blatant problems that this type or any type of slavery has. I'm not trying to gloss over the fact that there were unquestionable abuses in this form of slavery. The slavery allowed in the Bible was no utopia. My only point is to make clear that what's allowed in the Bible is not at all what happened here in America under race-based chattel slavery. They're two different things. The Bible is not at all pro-slavery as slavery was practiced here in America. In fact, as we heard Jeannie read for us, there's a clear condemnation 
of our race-based slavery in verse 16. Exodus 21:16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Friends, you need to note that the only time, the only time the Old Testament prescribes the death penalty for theft is the theft of a human life. Because the theft of a human life is so repugnant to treat a human being as property. And this is reaffirmed in the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul is clearly referring back to the Ten Commandments and referring back to this passage when he gives a list of that which is lawless and disobedient. He says, understanding this, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, there's the fifth commandment, for murderers, the sixth commandment, the sexually immoral, the seventh commandment, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Friends, the word translated here as enslavers is translated far more literally in the King James Version. The King James Version translates it as man-stealers, which is what the Greek literally says. The Apostle Paul is clearly referring us back to this command, whoever steals a man and sells him shall be put to death. Both the Old and the New Testament condemn the buying and selling of human beings. Friends, the Bible is not pro-slavery. It condemns American chattel slavery. And anyone who would say otherwise is pushing some agenda. So understand that today's section of Scripture is just a portion. It's just a portion of what the Bible teaches about slavery. And when we study all that the Bible actually teaches about slavery, we find overall the Bible is not pro-slavery. Rather, the Bible recognizes and it regulates the slavery of its time. The Bible recognizes the economic and social structures and cultures in the culture of that day, and it regulates those relationships without ever necessarily condoning or even encouraging those activities. You know, in the same way today, our Surgeon General of the United States, he recognizes and he regulates cigarette smoking, but he sure doesn't condone it or encourage it. If it's going to happen, let's make it safer. Let's make it better. And while the teachings of the Old and New Testament did not immediately dismantle the institution of slavery, it was unquestionably the teaching of Christianity and the work of Christians in the 19th century that undermined and eventually ended the European and American slave trade altogether. Friends, as I said, as far back as we can go in history and as wide as we go across the globe, we find slavery. Slavery was common everywhere until until it was outlawed by Western nations influenced by biblical teaching. Parliamentarian William Wilberforce, spurred to action by his Christian convictions, became an unstoppable force in the British Parliament so that in 1833, Britain was the first country in the history of the world to pass a Slavery Abolition Act. They were quickly followed by France in 1848, who abolished slavery in her colonies, 
and then came the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1865. Despite the prevalence in history of the practice, it was the influence of biblical teaching that caused for the first time in human history countries to abolish slavery. Because the Bible is decisively and definitively not pro-slavery. And anyone who says otherwise reveals their ignorance of what the Bible actually teaches and their ignorance of the history that reveals it was the biblical teaching in the Judeo-Christian worldview that were ultimately motivated the abolitionists to afford dignity to all persons and to dismantle the slave trade. And friends, having said all that, we need to recognize the tragedy that slavery is still not yet eradicated in this world. Slavery is not yet eradicated in this world. The truth is, during the height of the American and European slave trade, white people didn't go into the interior of Africa and round up the natives to enslave them. Americans and Europeans waited on the coast for their black partners to bring them other black Africans. Africans were sold into slavery by other Africans who had enslaved them. Despite the revisionist lies that are being put out there by the 1619 Project, slavery didn't somehow begin in 1619 when the slaves came to Jamestown. America and white people didn't somehow invent slavery. They might be horribly guilty of participating in and encouraging and profiting from slavery, but they didn't invent it. Well before Europe and America, slavery existed in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. The difference is, is that Europe and America have since abolished slavery, while slavery still exists in many other places in the world today. Friends, according to the very lowest, the very lowest estimates that are available, there are 700,000 slaves in Africa today. 700,000. And many estimates say it's actually far, far greater than that. Friends, 700,000 slaves is twice as many slaves as were ever brought over to the United States during the slave trade. Child soldiers, human trafficking, forced labor, labor, such slavery still exists today within the same sub-Saharan region where the transatlantic slave trade originated. And church, I point this out because as we've seen, the Bible is not pro-slavery. In fact, the gospel is a force of freedom wherever it advances. So in accordance with the truth of the Scripture and in the tradition of our abolitionist forebearers, today we must stand against slavery in all of its forms. Where you shop, what you purchase, for whom you vote, to which organizations you give, even how you pray, we, church, must take a stand for human dignity and freedom around the world. Church, the bottom line that we find in all of these laws that we read today is love. Remember, Jesus came and he summarized, he said, all the laws and commandments are summarized by love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if that's true, then all of the laws we read today are a picture of what loving your neighbor looks like in that time and that culture. We're not part of that time and culture, so some of these expressions of loving God and loving neighbor, they look strange or even repulsive to us. And, but while some still sound timely and relevant, don't they? 
But behind all of the laws is the character of God and the call to love. So we need to ask, friends, how is the unchanging character and design of God revealed by these laws? How is the call to love God and love neighbor accomplished by these laws? And church, what does love for God and neighbor look like for you and I today? Because we are not led by laws that merely describe love. We are led by the Spirit who causes us to love. And church, how is the Spirit leading you and I to ever greater love for God and love for our neighbors today? Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to see you, to see your character, to know your goodness and your truth. And help us, by the power of your Spirit, to love. To love you, to love our neighbor, led by your Spirit, for your name's sake and for your glory. Lord, we come now to your table. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ and the love that was demonstrated upon the cross. And may that love so form and shape us that we might live that love, that we might share that love, that we might exalt that love, and that many might respond to and receive that love because of our witness. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. If the elders would come forward for the serving of communion this morning.